0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.
1: Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the
2: dark
1: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about sinister stories and demented doctors. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor. And tonight, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Cryptic Wander and Heinrich von Wolfcastle, our voice talents Jesse Cornett, Trevor Rhines, Danielle Hewitt, Eric Peabody, Demon Creep, and Nick Goroff. Now, get your tickets ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale of the evening is written by Cryptic Wonder and is performed by Jesse Cornett, Trevor Rhines, Danielle Hewitt, and Eric Peabody two brothers and their ghostly uncle fall into a sinkhole while setting up a haunted house. There's no better way to pass the time than by telling scary stories. Without further ado, I present to you a Red Hill Halloween.
3: The day was unseasonably warm for Avon, Maine. My brother, Zach, and I had been working all day getting the lawn cut and chores done so we could help Serena with the pool shed off the side of the house. We all loved Halloween and wanted to do something great this year, so we decided to turn the shed into a haunted house. Plastic skeletons and paper ghosts littered outside and a sign proclaiming, Trespassers will be eaten. Unfortunately, as fun as that was, it was also true. We took extra precautions and double-chained the bulkhead doors to the cellar, but we couldn't be responsible for those lost. It's pretty unlikely that it would happen, but Captain Bubbles would eat the children in a heartbeat. The added effect of having an actual ghoul bang on the doors from down below would be a bonus to his credit. Even Uncle Bob was getting into the spirit as much as a ghost can. I suppose he's been walking around talking about back when kids didn't need parents to trick or treat and how most of the treats used to be homemade. Nobody worried about being poisoned or stabbed with a razor blade when biting into a red delicious. It's pretty cool to hear about how things used to be when holes in a bed sheet were a popular costume, but I'm starting to get concerned about our beer supply. I can't tell you for sure, but I think the fact that it's Halloween makes his form more solid. He almost looks like he did when he was alive and isn't floating around all over the place. He also isn't leaving a beer trail on the ground everywhere he goes. I could be wrong, but he might even be a little drunk. Something to do with the veil of the dead and all that. Finally, we were close to being finished. Kids would come in and Zack would jump out dressed as a roast turkey and scare them. They could get some punch and candy and be on their way out the back door. Serena was dressed as a witch, donning a purple hat with entirely too much glitter, and was tasked with handing out the treats. I would be the one to lead them out. My costume was the best. Twice, Zach asked why I was dressed like Gomez Adams, so I just learned to ignore it. By the way, I was dressed as Edgar Allan Poe. Serena went back outside to check on the decorations one last time, and I got a great idea. I went over to the side of the woodpile and hurried over to Zack and Uncle Bob. Alright, when she comes back in, don't make any noise. On my signal, jump out and scare the hell out of her. (laughs) <laughs>
4: Sounds good, man. I haven't heard her scream since we were kids, and I threw that spider in her hair, laughed Zach.
2: I think that she was the one that threw the spider in your hair, and that was also you screaming. <laughs> Chuckled Bob. Before
3: Zach had a chance to defend himself, the door opened up again and I silenced them both. She began walking around with a confused look, and when she came close, I silently counted off my hand. One, two, three was all I could get out. The ground beneath us quickly opened up, pulling the three of us down with it. We landed on soft dirt and a shallow pool of water, thankfully, and Serena began to call out. Don't come near it, I yelled. You could end up falling in, too. Just go get help from the fire department.
0: But they won't come down here anymore, since Zack burned down the family of scarecrows for fun.
3: She replied. Oh, damn it, that's right. Police are out. I guess maybe an ambulance? Fuck it. Go get Melvin and Sheena. I yelled back.
0: Alright, I'll be back soon. Just hang on, guys.
3: She yelled. The sound of the chains rustled, and the cellar door slammed hard. Serena screamed for a moment. Then it was silent once more. (laughs) That ghoul of
2: yours sure
4: is priceless, said Uncle Bob. Bob, why are you still down
2: there? Can't you fly? asked Zack. Normally, but I think I'm too full of beer. I ain't felt this alive since I died. Zack, your arm, I said, looking over
3: in horror. It snapped between the wrist and elbow, and the bone was sticking clean through, dangling loose skin. In a grotesque show, he pulled it off, meat and skin snapping apart like a rubber band, and then tossed it aside. What the hell, man? What did you just do? I'll relax. None of this is canon, he chuckled pushing his real arm through the sleeve. (sighs) All right, well, we're stuck in a sinkhole. What do you guys think we should do? I asked.
2: It's Halloween. There's only one thing we can do. Ghost stories,
3: said Bob, nodding matter-of-factly. So we huddled together in a circle, sitting in the soggy water and Zack began to speak. All right, I got one that'll really knock your socks off. I call it the circle of death. Zack opened his eyes. The room was blurred and the light coming in through the window was blinding. He fumbled around the table for his lighter, nothing like a morning pre-roll to shake the cobwebs off. He claimed his prize and pulled a slightly crumpled joint from his shirt pocket. After sparking it up and taking a few deep puffs, he began to look around the room. What the hell happened here? Hey Matt! Maddie. The room was in complete disarray. Photos knocked from the wall, chairs splintered and strewn about, definite signs a struggle had taken place. No answer from Matt. Zack decided to check for him upstairs.
4: Oh, shit.
3: A huge pool of blood lay at the foot of the stairs. How many people had contributed to this lake? There was no choice but to walk through it. Crimson footprints marked each step going up. He wasn't the first to come through here. He raced up the stairs and over to Matt's door slamming his massive frame into it. He tore through it like construction paper. There was no resistance whatsoever, and he nearly crashed into the opposing wall. Matt and Serena were startled awake. What the hell, Zack? You're fixing that door.
4: You're alright? Oh, thanks, sweet baby Jesus. I thought you guys were goners. And the door was like that when I got here. And... Also, the doors are not the only problem." Serena yawned loudly and spoke up.
0: Slow down, little buddy. What do you mean, not the only problem?
4: There's a puddle of blood at the bottom of the stairs big enough to swim in. Guys, I think we gotta get out of here.
0: Slow down, Zack. Let's go check it out. Can you give us a minute?
4: Hell no, man. I'm not going out there alone. Have you ever seen those
3: movies? Fine, whatever. Just close your eyes, would you? Matt gave the nod to Serena as Zack closed his eyes. They both got up and got dressed as quickly as they could. All right, you're good. Let's get out of here. The three of them emerged from the room. Zack is the largest lead in the pack. Coast is clear, guys. Let's head out." They hastily crept down the hallway and reached the top of the stairs.
0: "'Holy shit, you weren't kidding. Surprised the ducks haven't moved in,'
3: said Serena. "'There is someone or something that is probably going to kill us if it finds us. And you're talking about ducks? (laughs) Real nice, Serena. Real nice!'
0: Ladies first.
3: Serena giggled as she pushed past the brothers and made her way down the stairs. Zack and Matt stared dazed for a moment before making their way down. Serena reached the bottom and turned up to say something to them. Her words never made their mark, however. Blood erupted from her neck and her head was pulled back. An invisible blade carved back and forth as her head was jerked around violently. After a few gruesome moments, the blade cut clean through the spine, and her body fell limp. The head was suspended in midair, raining blood down as it fed the already swollen puddle. Zach and Matt turned and ran back upstairs. Uncle Bob's room seemed like the best option. It also had the only escape on the second floor. They stormed into his room and slammed the door behind them. Zach began stacking furniture in front of the door as Matt looked around for anything to defend themselves with. He approached the door that randomly led outside and was puzzled by what he saw. There, in the door, were dozens of tally marks. Sixty-nine to be exact. All scratched into the wood. Zach, what is happening? Serena, She's dead. Zack, what in the fuck is happening? His heart pumped loudly in his ears. Zack! Matt turned to look at his brother. Zack stood with his shoulder pressed against a dresser he had dragged in front of the door. A fog rolled off his body, much like dry ice. Matt got closer and felt the warmth drain from his face. Zach was covered in ice, an expression of fear frozen on his face. An eerie creak began from the door. Matt began taking steps back. One step, two steps, the creaking grew louder. Three steps, then bang! The door and makeshift barricade along with his brother shattered into a million icy shards. Matt backed up against the door leading to the roof. Tears stung the spots on his cheeks from where the ice had cut into him. As the ice settled, he saw a figure looking in the doorway. It was almost human, but distorted and much too large. It slowly crept forward mad shook with fear he felt for the knob to try and make his escape but it wasn't there he turned to look for it but it was as if there had never been one at all he turned back to face the creature it was closer now less than a moment at this rate for some odd reason this all felt so familiar The fear gradually evaporated, leaving another feeling in its place, deja vu. With each step the creature took, it became more and more clear. This had all happened before, and it would all happen again. Matt retrieved his pocket knife and opened it. He turned to face the door again and etched a line crossing the last four marks. Guess this makes 70. He felt a strong, clawed hand on his shoulder and hot breath on his neck. He closed his eyes and placed the knife back in his pocket.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take.
3: Scratch. 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 Zach finished his story, and we could all hear the sound of something being scraped in the distance. Serena? Zack yelled. There was no reply. The scratching continued, but we just resumed our stories. <laughs> that was actually pretty good, Zack. I admit it.
4: Thanks. I used that time I almost died in the old
2: folks' home as inspiration. Evil place. Well, I've been telling you kids history all night. I suppose one more story couldn't hurt. I don't really got a name for it. Most folks didn't give titles to their stories back then, but I guess you could call it The Gathering of the Dead. It's been pretty quiet around here for the past few years, other than the occasional spirit passing through. The house was built in 1820 and many generations have come and gone. In old times people didn't leave home much, so most died at home and were buried nearby. Often times the grave markers were forgotten or lost track of over time. Who knows how many souls you disturb by just mowing the lawn. I have met up with probably a dozen spirits here. Some are silent and just whisk around, not wanting to be seen. Others are loud with sounds or actions, trying to rid the place of the living that disturbed them. There are also child spirits, still playful and impish even in death. I guess they don't know the scope of what happened to them. Halloween seems to be an active time for the spirits. They all come out at once, so you get a variety of activities. A few years back, I watched the news and heard a baby crying upstairs. I knew there were no living people or animals in the house, but I had to look. I found nothing up there, but heard a ruckus downstairs. I came down and the kitchen table had been moved to the center of the room. The spare leaf had been put in the center to make it bigger and every chair and stool in the house were gathered around it, even my damn recliner. I decided that if they were going to have a gathering, I should probably go out on the town for the night and let them have at it. It was nearly seven on a Friday night, so the local bar was starting to get a crowd. Mind you, it's a small town, so the crowd consists of twenty people. The entertainment was just a pool table, Some drunk characters, a jukebox, and later on some drunks trying to sing karaoke. I'm pretty quiet, so I just got a pitcher of beer and took it to an empty booth on the side. I often went there to kick ass in pool tournaments, but tonight there were just a bunch of young punks playing that didn't even know what end of the table to break from. After half my pitcher was gone, an old friend, Eileen, came in. She got herself a ginger ale at the bar, came back, and sat in my booth.
0: What brings you down off the hill?
2: She asked. I proceeded to tell her about what had happened to the house. She was quite interested because she had messed around with the spirit world for quite some time. Rumors had long circulated in town that she was a witch. We had dated some when we were younger. A few good times in the sack, but never really went beyond that. She wanted to come back to the house with me with hopes of meeting some ghosts. I finished my pitcher and we went to my car. Drinking and driving wasn't a big thing back then. Cops were only involved when things went bad. Besides, you were responsible for your actions and no one else butted into your business. I sure do miss those times. Once, a few friends and I slow-rolled my van into someone's backyard in town, beside the cemetery. We fired the beer cans into the bushes and three friends took off on foot. The county sheriff's deputy eventually came around, but he didn't even get out of his car. He shined his spotlight on the upside-down van and asked if anyone got hurt and said, ''Get it out of there, boys!'' We walked the five miles home, getting back about midnight. The next day we went back with my brother and his Impala and pushed the van upright by hand and dragged it home with his car. Eileen and I got back to the house. There was a glow coming from the kitchen windows. I know that I hadn't left anything turned on. I unlocked the front door and we went inside. The chairs were still around the table with a faint glow. There was a low humming sound like they were all chanting together slowly. Eileen had gone over and knelt beside the recliner to listen to their low chant. I reached for the light switch beside the door, but nothing happened when I flicked it on. I decided to go back to the car and get my flashlight. When I returned, Eileen met me outside the door.
0: It's kinda weird, she said. It's like they have a seance to keep the living out of the house.
2: Well, they better learn that this is my house now, I said. I went to the bulkhead in the shed and down into the cellar. Sure enough, the main had been switched off in the power panel. I turned it back on and heard quite a commotion on the floor above. I went back out front and saw that the kitchen light was now on. Eileen and I went back inside and were surprised that the table and chairs were all back in their places, and the spare leaf was out of the table. Eileen talked me into having our little seance. I agreed on the condition that I could have a beer at the same time. She lit a couple of candles, turned the lights off, and did her low chance. After ten minutes, she was just finishing up when a coffee cup fell out of the cupboard and smashed onto the floor. She said that the spirits were trying one last attempt to scare us off. She finished her last chant and blew out the candles. I turned the light back on and she said that the spirits shouldn't bother too much anymore, but there might be a straight one now and then. She said she had one last chant to protect me, so I said okay.
0: Spirits of the house, let this man be. I command you this promise to keep. For all his time, let him sleep.
2: I said, well, then sleep sounds like a good idea. She agreed and asked if she could crash on the couch. I said, of course, and the night was quiet after that. There hasn't been much spirit activity here since that night.
3: Zack and I slowly looked at each other when he was done speaking. Our eyes were wide, and we locked sight. We both screamed, hugging each other in a mock show of terror. I hate to say it, but that was about as lame as soggy toast, Uncle Bob, Zack said. (laughs) Yeah, it was good, but it wasn't all that scary, I said. Just as the words left my lips, we could hear things rapidly moving around the house. There were murmurs, like people talking and
2: laughing, and I swear, I could hear a baby crying. Oh, don't mind them. They're just having their annual get together. (laughs) You go ahead and tell your spooky tale, Matt. (laughs) He said with a chuckle.
3: All right, well. I I guess it's my turn now. I call it Franken-Zach." The sun had set not too long ago, and darkness overtook the cemetery. Everything was grainy and in black and white as color hadn't been invented yet. Not a single soul, living or dead, could be heard. Only the sound of the shovel scraping into the dirt, again. And again. Damn it, bro. Why did you have to try and teach that moose remedial Spanish? Matt hissed to himself. He continued to dig until he hit the casket. Brushing the dirt aside, he lifted the heavy three foot coffin out of the hole and onto the grass above. Letting out a sigh, he climbed out and brought it over to the truck, tossing it unceremoniously in the bed. And with that, he left and went back to the house. After lugging the coffin up the stairs and onto the roof of the pool shed outside of Uncle Bob's room, Matt kicked off the top, revealing a small figure inside. It was a great thing the circus was in town last week. Being such a small population, deaths were scarce and fresh bodies were hard to come by. The lion went feral that day by a stroke of luck The lion tamer whipped the creature one too many times, and the clown who stood near it, had his legs, ripped to shreds. Unfortunately, he was also a little person, but beggars can't be choosers. He glanced at Zack's ruined body once more before cutting open the little man's skull. Matt tugged the brain out, making a wet pop as the stem detached then tossed it aside. Taking Zack's brain, he shoved it inside, then closed it up. The legs were a problem, so he swapped them around, too. Wait, this is like some next-level surgeon
4: stuff you're talking about here. How are you gonna just swap him out like it's a Mr. Potato
3: Head, asked Zack. Will you be quiet? Just just don't worry about it. I shot back. Now, Where was I? So the body and brain are finally together. Matt continued his dark work and raised the table. It was only a couple of feet up, as he didn't have an actual lab to work with, but he stepped back and waited. Thunder had been promised tonight in the forecast, and while the sky was full of clouds, they continued to drift on by in the peaceful night. "'Are you kidding me?' Matt yelled. "'I spent all day at a freaking circus tent dealing with other people's terrible children, subtly shooting a lion in the ass with a pellet pistol, and dug up a tiny clown's body for the weather to be bad?' No! You're going to give me lightning! Like you
1: promised, goddammit!
3: No sooner did he say the words than a bolt of lightning blasted out of nowhere. Matt fell on his ass and quickly got up to put out the small fires around the roof. Heat streamed off the body before him and slowly the hands started twitching. The torso began to rise as its eyes opened to stare down at Matt. Matt nearly jumped out of his skin, moaning, seeing the thing before him. (laughs) It worked! I can't believe it! I mean, it's alive! It's alive! (laughs) The small frame sat on the edge of the table with its freakishly long Zach legs, then stood up. Altogether, it was about the size of a normal person, but the combination looked so terribly wrong. Before Matt could react, it stumbled forward and fell off the roof. Damn it! I guess I better go get him. Matt ran back into the house and out the door to the shed, but it was already gone. The creature still had Zach's brain and personality, but he was severely dumbed down he made it to the edge of phillips and happened upon a little girl she was playing with her dolly and seeing the creature she walked over and offered up her prized possession Frank and Zach wasted no time taking it booting her into a well laughing he continued toward the main street Frank and Zach didn't mind it much as he went to the cake shop breaking the display window, he devoured as many confections as possible. People saw him emerge from the shadows and began screaming in horror. Ah! His stomach was much smaller than he remembered, equating to about half a cake. Stuffed full of a few pieces, he ran toward the apartment complex that housed a few of the town's local whores. Sasha had just stepped out of the shower after another customer had left. She sat on the bed, not bothering to put any clothes on, and began brushing her long brunette hair. She lifted a mirror to do her makeup and screamed, seeing his horrible, burnt, clown face in the mirror. Zack slowly stumbled through the door, quietly making his way over to her room. She quickly backed up as she struggled to understand how such a little body could have such long ass legs. It was true that Zack was a part Sasquatch, but she never had time to put the two together. Mmm, friend, he said, looking over her naked body. His high-pitched voice would be hilarious under normal circumstances. He reached into his back pocket to pull out what cash he had in his wallet and tossed a couple hundred dollars toward her. The two proceeded to get busy with her not being one to turn down cash. Afterward, while smoking a joint, she began to ask him questions like, Am I pretty? And Are you seeing someone else? His instincts fired on all cylinders and he made to leave as fast as possible she wasn't having it though and wrapped her arms around him trying to pull him back like a cornered animal Frank and Zack lashed out smashing her head to the bed his tiny hands wrapped around her throat and as much as she scratched slapped and almost threw him off she finally lay still bad bad lady he yelled in his high-pitched tone. He left her dead body there as he took to the streets, heading to the one place where he knew he would be safe. Unfortunately, word around town had spread, and the townspeople began gathering anything they could find as weapons and carried torches through the streets. Frankensack ran as fast as his freakishly long legs could carry him, which was pretty fast. And finally, up ahead... His haven came into view. It was the bull, the local pizza place that Serena used to work at. Not wasting a second, he smashed through the door and struggled to push tables up against it. The two guys inside were understandably confused when they saw this thing appear inside their establishment. They went up to tell him off and he began to growl at them. They laughed as his little arms couldn't quite reach them. Frank and Zack gave mighty screams of anger, but they were to no avail. Matt, knowing his brother's eating habits, went to the bull as well. The door was locked, but he knew he was in there. He also knew that in about five minutes, there would be an angry mob there as well, and he needed to hurry. He went around the back, and the service entrance was open. Running through the kitchen, he came upon the sight of the two bullies messing with his brother. Anger grew hot in his chest, and Matt threw a can of tomato sauce at one of their heads. Pop! The can exploded in a mess of red, covering not only the cashier, but also his brother. He dropped to the ground like a stone, and the other man ran out the back. You okay, bro? Matt asked.
1: Zack Ugly, Zack Monster,
3: he said sadly. It's okay, buddy. Maddie's here, he said, hugging him. Suddenly, the doors began to bang. Outside, they could hear the angry shouts of the mob as they forced their way in. The tables were pushed from their positions and the door slowly opened, letting in a stream of people. There he is! It's the monster! It needs to die! They all screamed in tandem. They began to make their way forward. Knives and other awful weapons raced, and Matt put himself between them. He's not a monster. He's my brother, and you people are going to leave him alone. You're the real monsters here, all of you with your axes and your fire. Zack is a saint compared to you all. The crowd momentarily stopped pursuing and seemed to reflect upon Matt's words, just as he thought they were going to drop their weapons and go home. Someone screamed, KILL HIM ANYWAY! Out from the crowd came Molotov cocktails, fire exploding out with a (laughs) (laughs) Matt tried to pull his brother with him to the back door, but he spoke in a high-pitched voice. Yo, bro, go, leave that here. Matt tried to convince him to come, to talk him out of it. But the fire was raging, and there was no reasoning with him. And with a final shove that was hilariously weaker than it should have been, Matt watched on, completely distraught, as his only brother disappeared into the flames. The end. <laughs>
4: Well, that was a depressing story, said Zack. Like, you didn't even try to get me out of there. You just let me burn.
2: Yeah, well, that's what you get for playing with the wildlife, Uncle Bob replied.
3: The scratching had persisted up to this point, but was becoming even louder. We looked up at each other with confused expressions, when finally, the wall behind Bob began to open up. Oh shit, it's Mr. Bubbles, said Zack. The ghoul we had trapped in the basement finally found a way to us. Blood already coated its claws and face, and I think I knew why, from the sparkling purple witch hat atop its head. A flurry of motion proceeded to disembowel tearing us apart. Finally, after all this time, he got to feast on our flesh, and when satisfied, he smiled and walked back to the hole he had dug. Happy Halloween, he exclaimed as he lay down and entered the most peaceful sleep of its un-death.
1: I hope you enjoyed A Red Hill Halloween, as written by Cryptic Wander and voiced by Jesse Cornett, Trevor Rhines, Danielle Hewitt, and Eric Peabody. To find more of author cryptic Wander, visit their Reddit page. Our second tale of the evening comes to us from author Heinrich von Wolf Castle and is performed by Demon Creep and Nick Gorov. Now, without further ado, I present to you, The Contritionist.
5: My hand is soft in his grip. He does not shake it, but rather holds it, securing our palms together. I attempt to withdraw from the gesture, but he does not let go of me, and he is immovable in his stance.
6: Mr. Benemarito, I presume.
5: He says, his voice performing the words before releasing my hand. I nod. Suddenly feeling small on the man's doorstep. He stands in the threshold of a house in a three piece suit, one hand restraining a monolithic wooden door behind him, and the other gesturing me to enter.
6: I'm glad you came, and I am equally pleased to meet you,
5: he says. I nod again and place my hands in my pockets, while my eyes explore the interior of the foyer. A large chandelier is suspended above our heads, a metal and wooden thing casting yellowed light. It complements the matte tile and dark, patterned wallpaper of the hall, all of which seem to speak to the man's wealth.
6: This is my home, but it is also my place of work, he informs me. Allow me to take your coat.
5: Thanks, I said absent-mindedly handing it to him while craning my neck to search the wooden beams supporting the vaulted ceiling. He places my jacket on a coat rack to my left, and I am suddenly embarrassed by its ragged appearance on the wrought iron structure.
6: I trust you found the house easily enough?
5: He asks, employing small talk to ease my palpable discomfort. Yes, thank you, I say remembering the drive to the house as a much more distant experience than it was.
6: I don't usually reach out for visitors, and to be honest, I'm surprised
5: you came, he says. I nod again.
6: It seems like you are too,
5: he says through a smile. After a note of silence, he continues.
6: Well, this will all make sense soon enough. Please follow me this way to the office.
5: He leads us down a wide and dimly lit hallway, adorned with large plants overflowing their bases and suits of armor standing sentinel at each side. At the end of the hall is a door with a rippled window. And I strangely recall a forgotten fact from middle school science. Glass is neither a liquid nor a solid, but something in between.
6: I appreciate your arrival on such short notice.
5: He says as we arrive at the door, it's thick glass leeching yellow light. Of course, I reply, uneasy with my own agreeability. Beside the door, a brass plaque bears the man's name, something German and his MD credentials. Beneath that, it reads, contritionist, my tongue mimes the word.
6: I was a doctor some time ago,
5: a psychiatrist. But even then,
6: I've always been a contritionist.
5: He pauses to read my expression.
6: What is that you wonder?
5: My eyes follow his hands as it reaches for the door.
6: Let me show you.
5: The office is a cacophony of wood textures, the walls paneled in coffee browns and the floor woven together in dark and rich boards. Candles stand lit in sconces suspended from the walls. They cast shadows against cabinets and shelves lined with books, objects, and framed art. Can I offer
6: you a drink?
5: The doctor asks from a liquor cabinet at the side of the room.
6: Whiskey, bourbon, or scotch perhaps?
5: He pours a caramel-colored liquid into a glass tumbler. Scotch, I say. The doctor smirks like a tailor confirming an estimated measurement. He nods and hands me the tumbler he already poured. The weight of the glass feels good in my hand, solid like an anchor amidst the turbulence of the office. I move from one bookshelf to the next, studying his memorabilia but unable to make sense of any of it. A browned leather square catches my attention. It is pinned against a white cloth under a glass frame, but there is no title to the piece. The edges of the square look like they've begun to curl. Skin. The doctor's voice punctures my examination. I turn and find him seated behind a robust desk, leaning back in his leather chair. More artifacts stand on shelves at his back like little legionnaires. This is skin? I ask, raising my glass to my lips before I finish the words. Yes? He confirms. Whose? I shoot back. The word fires from my mouth before I mean to release it.
6: Well, I am not at liberty to share that. The nature of my work is confidential.
5: He says, taking a sip from his drink. No, I, I mean, why do you have someone's skin?
6: That's what I do. I am a contritionist.
5: The doctor repeats, as if he were stating an obvious conclusion. I look back to the skin in the frame to learn more of its story, but it is absent of any. From the corner of my eye, I notice a jar sitting on an adjacent shelf. It has a finger floating in it. A finger? What the fuck? The words are rotten on my tongue and fall from my mouth. A ring finger. The doctor corrects. Yeah, a fucking finger. I choke out.
6: Not just any finger. A ring finger.
5: He specifies again. What's the fucking difference?
6: All of these things.
5: The doctor waves his hand at the shelf behind me. They're all symbols. They're body parts, I contest.
6: The nature of my work, he starts, is to help people find forgiveness. These artifacts are a penance, a testament to the deep remorse of a suffering person. They're the embodiment of guilt externalized and removed from the body.
5: I shake my head at his answer. Guilt for what?
6: For whatever the person believes they are guilty of. Errors of commission, errors of omission, and everything in between.
5: I shake my head again. You're a psycho. I snap, raising my eyes to meet his.
6: Psychopathy
5: is an entirely different matter. He gauges my tolerance for the discussion before continuing.
6: I provide my clients with relief. They arrive burdened with remorse for what they've done, but they leave here liberated from it.
5: He seems pleased that I've listened to his explanation. People pay a high price for this. He raises his finger to highlight his point people pay for this my hand carelessly collides with a small box on a shelf and causes it to rattle teeth the doctor says in response to my quizzical look
6: yes people pay for this he
5: reads my face again before continuing
6: i am retired and i would do my work for free but it does not work if people do not place a value on my services
5: I stutter some nonsensical sounds in disbelief and then give up altogether. I place the doctor's scotch on the shelf next to the box of teeth and turn towards the door to leave. As I begin to make my way, I realize he does nothing to stop me. He does not call out for me, does not plead with me to stay, and does not threaten me. He watches. I reach for the door handle and notice another jar sitting on a small cabinet at my side. It contains a snake-like looking thing. Like a finger, but less jointed. The absurdity of it steals my attention. A penis. The doctor calls out from his desk. You cut off someone's dick? Contempt forms a spittle at the corners of my mouth.
6: No, no. The man did it himself. My role was to assist. Penis removal requires immediate cauterization or it can result in death.
5: Why would some dude cut off his own dick? Good,
6: you're intrigued.
5: The doctor smirks. His enthusiasm reveals a hint of his native accent. He rises from his chair and stands briefly before sitting upon the edge of his desk. He is tall enough for his legs to remain rooted to the floor.
6: As I said, these things are symbolic of things beyond themselves. They are not remorseful, but representative of the remorse.
5: He motions to the penis in the jar.
6: This man committed infidelity.
5: So he cut off his dick? He took a
6: drastic measure to liberate himself from his shame. The remorse was intolerable and he contracted with me to pay a price hefty enough to buy his own forgiveness.
5: And that works? I ask, briefly forgetting my indignation.
6: If a person believes it enough.
5: The doctor answers.
6: Atonement by mortification of the flesh is not
5: new. He focuses on my expression and invites me to return to the interior of the office.
6: Please, sit and I can share more.
5: Against my better judgment, I find my feet hesitantly trudging in the contritionist's direction. The weight of 100 body parts spread about the room press upon me. In coordination with my pace, the doctor returns to his chair behind the desk. Talk therapy is talk. This is action. He encourages. I find a place on a tufted leather chair. The floor is even, yet it feels like he towers over me. But I'm not looking for forgiveness, I say. No, I know that. He acknowledges. The tension of our meeting eases into the space between our exchanges. As he waits for me to continue... He catches my glance at a knife displayed behind his desk. He rotates his chair to take it and places it before me. Go ahead.
6: You can touch it.
5: No, thank you, I say.
6: May I then?
5: He asks. I shrug, trusting the doctor not to cut me.
6: This is a ceremonial dagger,
5: a grace. He holds it in his hands, avoiding contact with the metal of the winding and weaving blade. The handle is a dirty shade of white, painted over in strict, angular designs.
6: It is an Indonesian dagger, he
5: informs me.
6: And it was given as a gift, a token of gratitude from someone who benefited from my services.
5: Do you cut off? I start.
6: No, it's not a surgical blade.
5: He shakes his head.
6: While it is certainly capable of piercing, this is not for excising
5: from the body. I reach for the knife and hold it in my hands. Be
6: careful not to touch the blade.
5: The doctor cautions. His reaction seems reflexive. Is it that sharp? I ask. No, but the oil in your hands... The doctor begins before quickly resigning.
6: (sighs) You can touch the
5: blade. I roll the knife over, mesmerized by its beauty. It's like holding a museum relic. I still don't understand. What do people want forgiveness for so badly? I ask, returning my attention to the doctor.
6: For some, it is merely cause and effect. For example, The man whose penis now resides in a jar, he cheated on his wife. When she discovered the affair,
5: she was... The doctor waits to find the right words before finishing.
6: She was displeased.
5: The doctor shifts in his chair, growing more comfortable with the discussion of the case study.
6: And in the man's remorse, he told her that he would do anything to make it up to her. So, he did.
5: I look at the doctor blankly, expecting a punchline. Did it work? I asked.
6: Well, she did not take him back because she wanted a husband who could please her sexually. That angered him so much that he no longer felt remorseful for his indiscretions.
5: But he's worse off now than he was, I contend.
6: But he no longer feels remorse, and that... Is what he paid for.
5: The doctor says with a raised finger, again emphasizing a lesson of some kind. My gaze passes him, scanning the shelf of organic things lining the wall. The appendages are difficult to decipher in their alien context. An eyeball floating in a glass, a photograph of a hand impaled upon a spike, an ear artfully removed, flayed, and penned upon a framed canvas.
6: Let me tell you about a more complicated case.
5: The doctor begins.
6: Imagine a woman in her mid-forties, a beautiful woman who's lived her whole life in accordance with the rules society wrote for her. And from childhood through to modern day, she has lived with crippling depression she labors to get out of bed in the morning, just as she exhausts herself to accomplish the most mundane chores, and yet there is no reward for her in any of the pleasantries of life."
5: The doctor reaches his hand out to me, expectantly. How does that happen? I ask, returning the knife.
6: This is a good question, and an important one.
5: The doctor glances at the dagger in his hand. And inspects it before continuing
6: we have dialogued regarding every aspect of her life and yet we can find no original sin so to speak to account for her misery sometimes a family passes forward its anxieties and traumas intergenerationally until they burden one designated suffer for the family this usually results in a tragedy of some kind disease or addiction, a violent act of murder or an accident that ultimately ends in death. And this is important.
5: The doctor points his finger to the ceiling.
6: Because it is only through this kind of trauma that a family can finally grieve and find catharsis to ease multiple generations worth of pain.
5: So what does this have to do with the woman,
6: I ask. She is so strong, has been so strong, that she never allowed that tragedy to manifest.
5: The doctor holds the silence after his statement.
6: She cannot sacrifice for the family, she just suffers. Her thoughts, her feelings, behaviors, they're all so knotted up and intertwined that she cannot pull on a thread to untangle herself.
5: Okay. I say, but even so, I still don't understand what any of this has to do with me. My eyes meet the doctors. Why am I here? This woman, he starts again,
6: has decided that she is finally willing to do anything to free herself from the cycle of her family's pain. She is ready for something to burst.
5: Great. I scoff with impatience. So, why am I here? The doctor shifts the dagger in his hand again, tightening his grip on the ornate handle.
6: As it turns out, he states, You're her
1: firstborn son. I hope you enjoyed The Contritionist as written by Heinrich von Wolf Castle and performed by Demon Creep and Nick Goroff. Heinrich von Wolfcastle is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association and a member of the Great Lakes Association of Horror Writers. His work has appeared in multiple anthologies and magazines. Most recently, you can hear his story, Things in the Attic, presented on the Scare You to Sleep podcast and read his story, The Ones in Between in Blackberry Blood. Though he lives the life of a recluse, he has been known to emerge from the shadows for trick-or-treaters on Halloween night. Demon Creeps narrations can be found on his very own YouTube channel under the same name. Now, our weekly Descent into the Depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight. And remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free.
2: chilling tales for dark nights
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well If you own a home you know how much work it can take whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs